would to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I preached from this passage a few years ago, and I also preached from it just the other day at St. Anne's Nursing Home. And it seemed to be a a blessing to the folks there as I'm looking out at them with their difficulties and trials and struggles. And I thought, well, this is something we need to go back to again and again. It reminds us of our hope and our comfort in this life. In verse 5, the writer to Hebrews says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I know Pastor Huber also recently, back in January, preached on the subject of covetousness. And that's just part of the message. That's part of this verse about the sin of covetousness. It's something that we... Uh, aren't always aware of. Uh, We hardly ever recognize that we have it. But it's certainly a sin that we need to be careful about. Uh, What is covetousness? It's desiring something which God has forbidden or He has withheld. It's a very serious sin. Paul calls it idolatry because it's putting something else before Him. It's also an extremely diverse sin. It betrays itself in so many, many ways. It betrays itself by complaining or grumbling with our present condition in life. And how often do we do that? Too much. Way, way too much. It's also shown by envying others. That's what the Tenth Commandment says, we shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's servants and so forth. It's envying others, their homes or their their wives or husbands, their job, their position, their gifts. Maybe you envy their children. Oh, I wish I had children like that. They were just so much easier to take care of than mine have been. It also shows itself by perpetually craving and desiring those things which we do not have. It's not only desiring what God's forbidden, but even what God has withheld from us. And then it betrays itself by bitter regrets over the past or when we're fretful of the future. We need to remember, as Matthew Henry said, the past cannot be recalled and the future things are only in the hand of God. That's why we are to refrain from covetousness and grumbling. But notice how the writer here Contrast covetousness with contentment. He says, be content with such things as you have. Contentment is the very opposite of covetousness. It means to be satisfied with what you have. Uh, This verse says, to be content or satisfied with such things as you have. Whether it be a little or a lot. You think, well, if I had a lot, I would be content. That's not necessarily so. Uh, who was it, the great rich man that said, how much, do you, how much do you want? He said, just a little more. Paul said that he had learned in whatever state or condition he was in, therewith to be content. Uh, in 
Second Corinthians chapter 12, remember Paul spoke of having this thorn in his flesh. Many Bible scholars believe that he was speaking of some kind of physical affliction. Perhaps his eyesight. Remember he, he talked to uh, the Corinthians how they would have plucked out their very eyes for him. Some think maybe that's what it was. He had such poor eyesight that he was praying that God would remove it, this thorn in his flesh. He said there that he had prayed three times. Actually, he said he pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it. But the Lord did not remove it. Rather, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so his response of contentment was this. Therefore, he says, most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Not that he liked them, but if they glorified God and and exalted his strength, then he was satisfied with that. He said, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. If it will honor and glorify my Lord, then I will rest content with that. He rested content with what God's hand had given him, his providence. Now, this verse here that we're looking at for a few moments, it not only gives the command not to covet and rather to be content, the writer also gives us a reason for the promise. He says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of the old Puritans called this a golden promise. Were there no more, he says, it has enough in it to steal and arm the soul against all inordinate cares. Another Puritan called this a capacious promise. Capaciousness means that it's wide or very large, capable of holding so much. When God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. This includes everything. It includes all times and places and all circumstances in which we fall. All dangers we face, all needs we have, all hardships, all difficulties whatsoever. When I went to the nursing home I wanted to sing a hymn, but I couldn't remember. I didn't think it was in their little uh, their little songbook, but it's one we love here. How firm a foundation. I knew they would know it, so I, I printed off a bunch of copies in large print and gave it to them. And I said, here, you may want to take this back to your room afterwards so you can just think it over. But you know the hymn so well. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word. And then it each verse is a promise of God. It's in quotations. It's not actually verbatim promises in God's Word. But they are paraphrases that we find in God's Word of His promises. The first promise, When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Oh, what a precious promise that is. These are found in the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, but here in this passage we're looking at here, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, this is actually very emphatic. It gives a negative five times of what God said he'll not do. I'll never 
never forsake you. In fact, that's reflected in this, this hymn. Uh, it says, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I never, no, never, no, never forsake. Five times God says it to underscore, I'll never forsake you. And saying it in the negative is a very strong way to affirm that he'll be with you. He could say, I'll always be with you. But to say, I'll never forsake you, that's even stronger. Just to remind us of the certainty, the absolute certainty of God's promise. He's saying that there's absolutely nothing that can come upon us or happen to us that would cause the Lord to leave or forsake us. Now consider who it was who said it. It says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's very important because the strength of the promise is found in the author of the promise. Uh, That's what secures it for us. This is the anchor of our souls because God said it. Sometimes people make promises they have no intention whatsoever of keeping. I think of politicians do this. (laughs) They do it to get elected. They promise things, but they have no intention of keeping it. They just make it to make you happy and so you'll vote for them. Some people make promises they forget to keep. Either they have a faulty memory, they promised it, they meant it, but they forgot about it. Or maybe just the busyness of life got in the way, too many things cluttered in the mind, and they simply forgot to do what they promised they would do. That's our weakness, our frailty. Sometimes they make promises they can't keep. They would, but they can't. Uh, Either because of the lack of strength or ability or the circumstances or something prevents them from doing what they genuinely want to do. But you see, when God makes a promise, He can keep it. And He will keep it. God cannot lie. He'll never make a promise He doesn't intend to keep. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, He says that very thing. God who cannot lie made an oath. Well, God cannot lie and nothing in heaven or on earth can prevent Him from keeping it. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. He says, I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can keep God or prevent Him from keeping it. He can be trusted. Great is Thy faithfulness, the other hymn writer put it. This is God who promises It's the God who made the heavens and the earth. As I mentioned, this uh, hymn that I gave to the folks there, which we love so much, uh, many of these verses are taken from Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 and 2. And there it begins this way, Now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So he's speaking here of who he is. He reminds them that he is their creator. He is the creator of all things. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Nothing is too hard for him. Charles Simeon said he will be with his people both in the manifestations of his presence and in the communications of his grace so that under the severest afflictions they shall have abundant support. You think of how God has been with his saints throughout the ages. You think of Paul and Silas when they were arrested in Philippi and thrown into jail. They were beaten and thrown into jail. And what do we find them doing at midnight? They're singing and praising the Lord. And then God came and delivered them. The the earthquake came and the jail cells flew open and their shackles came off. They didn't leave. The Philippian jailer came in. He was afraid that that's exactly what they had done. They had escaped. But he said, no, we're all here. And so the Philippian jailer, the very one who put them in that dungeon, he took them out and took care of their wounds and washed them. And he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved. You think of Daniel's three friends thrown into the fiery furnace. God was there. God was with them and he delivered them. Simeon goes on to say, it's pleasing to observe with what satisfaction God contemplates the relation in which he stands to his people. There in Isaiah 43, he's talking about. And what delight he excapates, uh, expiates upon it. Thus says the Lord who created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by your name. You are mine. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. You see, here he says is abundant security to us for the accomplishment of every word that God has spoken. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's God speaking. God is saying this. You are mine. I have redeemed you. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he speaks of the great redemption we have in Christ? He who spared not his own son, how shall he not with him also give you all things? He'll be with you to watch over you. Now, I want, you to, I want to point out to whom did he say this? To whom is this promise given? Some think that every promise of the Bible is theirs, no matter who they are. Well, that's not so. The promises, you need to find out who they were given to. Well, they're given to his people. Those who have fled to Jesus for refuge. Those who are his children. Not to all men, without exception, but to those people. His own chosen people. Those who have fled to the Lord Jesus Christ for refuge. It was Christ who secured those blessings and those promises for them. All Paul said, all of the promises of God in Him, that is in Christ, are yes. And in Him, amen. Not to all men, but to His people. I ran across a, uh, a song. I looked up, it just sounded interesting, but it didn't sound correct. And as so I looked up the lyrics, I saw, no, it's not correct at all. But it said that God, speaking of God, is everywhere, that even hell is not a God-forsaken place. Well, that's not true. It actually is. 
I mean, God is there. He's everywhere. If I go into the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, behold, thou art there. God's presence is everywhere. But in hell, it is indeed a God-forsaken place. Where God abandons those. He casts them, the Bible says, into what? Outer darkness. That's a God-forsaken place. A God-forsaken place isn't just simply some dry, dusty desert. It's a place of outer darkness where God's favor is not felt. God's favor is not known. There's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And that's for those who do not know Him, the Bible says. Those who have rejected Christ, God's only answer for sinners. God's only remedy for the lost. And they have said no. And so God says, when you call upon Me, I won't listen all day long, I've held out my hand to a stubborn and disobedient people. He's called. He's beckoned. Come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But you say no. And there's a coming a day when He will forsake you altogether. There will be no more days of salvation. No more hope of His mercy. You will be God forsaken. But then I want you to think of this. This whole matter of being forsaken by God. Forsaken is a word of loneliness, utter helplessness, hopelessness. Do you know anything of that? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ certainly did. He understood being forsaken of God. It was on the cross that He uttered those pathetic words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was there on the cross that he was forsaken by God. He was forsaken by God because he who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf. He took our sins upon himself. And in that hour of agony, it's as though the Father had turned his back on God the Son. Because the God the Son was standing in our place, receiving what we deserve. It was there He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken. So this precious, heart-cheering promise is made to those who put their faith and their trust in Him. All the promises of God in Him are yes. And in Him, amen. And they belong, these promises, this promise in particular, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that's for every believer from the weakest to the strongest, from the youngest to the oldest. Jesus spoke of His sheep and that they are in the Father's hand and no one shall pluck them out of My Father's hand. And so what a heart-cheering promise this is and why we should be free of covetousness and why we should be content because we have the God who made us, the God who redeemed us, the God who watches over us. As our God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We have God on our side. We have God in our corner. We have God watching over us. God who has promised, I will never forsake you. He'll be with you always. Let's pray.
Gracious Father,